good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And yes, it is. We're back. It's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, I have to say a very, very good morning to John Arnott, Manager of Horticulture down at Cranbourne. Morning, John. Good morning, Pam, and Happy New Year to you and um, all the listeners. Absolutely. 2020. Oh, it's more than that, John. Guess what? The um, date yeah. of today. Yep. O two O two two O two O. Oh, that's perfect. It won't happen again till the third of March, thirty thirty. Say again. O two O two two O two O. That's great. Is that wonderful? And, and do you know what else it is? It's what? my daughter Amy's birthday. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> How so auspicious if, day! If um, you're listening in, Ames, what an auspicious number! Yes. Um, happy birthday, darling! Wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful! <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Glad you like yeah. it. Good morning, Chloe Foster. Good morning. How are you guys? I'm very happy to be back in it's, the studio super early on a Sunday it's morning. Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's you actually sound like you mean it, Chloe. <laughs> oh, no, I you honestly can... do mean it from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, indeed. It's great. It's yeah. great to be back. Oh, dear. What a summer we've had already. I know. I know. It's just been unbelievable in so many ways. Mm. It really has. What about last, oh, no, maybe 10 days ago, we had. Um, the extraordinary hailstorm in Canberra. Uh, and if you just think about Canberra as a, as a dot on the map, 300 kilometres to the west, there was a dust storm. Mm-hmm. 300 kilometres to the southeast, there were going fires, and, you know, really significant going fires, and 300 kilometres due south, floods. Yes. That's ridiculous. I know. Yes. You know, that's, that's just, you know, it, it's an extraordinary... Ah, a series of environmental events that that uh, are confronting us. And it's catastrophic, John. It, it, is, it really it, is. Yeah, yeah, for There's sure. There's no other word for it. it. This has to be, has to be the catalyst for progressive policy change. It has to. Things have to change. Yeah, yep. But I tell you what, the other thing that this has really made me very, very aware of is how big our continent is yep. and how much... Um, our climates change within our continent and we have to take that into account even on, on more normal um, weather times. Yeah, absolutely. Because absolutely. there's such a wide range across this, this whole country. It, it, it's, it's got to the point where it's, it, it's, it's impossible to not recognise that what's happening on days like that and you know, the extreme... We've had you know, five months of... Going fires across the east coast of Australia. Mm. Yes, it's impossible to not make the correlation between between what's happening environmentally and you know the shifting shifting climate. Absolutely, you, you, you say so, and it's just there's just no credibility. I mean, there never was credibility in, in in saying that the science didn't exist. You know, climate scientists for 20 years have been saying exactly we're going to get this stuff. And I mean, we've had plenty of warning. Yeah, but it but it just doesn't cut it anymore. No, there's just no, no. legitimacy to it. Mm. We've got really on. political really quickly. <laughs> and, and, and I said, you guys, don't get political. political. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, we're with a, with a straight back at you. Yeah, <laughs> of course. No, we won't go there. I just, <laughs> no, no, uh, it's, it's really that. difficult it, not, it, not it to. It really has to be discussed. I guess the point is that it, it, this has to be the catalyst yes. um, for, uh, for just, progressive policy. I really bloody hope it is the yeah, catalyst. Yeah. Because. Yep. A seminal moment. We have to do something. We have to make change. Whether it's, you know, just. Small changes. 
or, or bigger oh, ones. We need to make big ones, but yeah. everyday ones, like everyone can, yeah. it's possible yeah. 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 to yeah. make small changes to improve things. Yeah, we've, we've, on a completely different topic related, we, we've started up a green team um, at, at the Cram and Gardens, which is okay. just, just looking at, at little things. It's, the, it's to your point, little things that you can do to make a, a, a difference in terms of any con- energy consumption and carbon footprints and even things like, um, turning your computer monitor off, mm. just to monitor the little, yep. the little, um, you know, uh, LED light which, yep. which sits there overnight. Um, you aggregate that across. We work it out. You aggregate that across our office, um, across you know 30 computers at the gardens. And if everyone turned their computer computer monitor off at night over the course of the year, that's the equivalent of saving three trips to Sydney and back in a car. Oh, Goodness, wow. in terms of carbon carbon footprint. Gosh, that, wow. that tiny little light yes. on your computer. Just little things. Little things. Everyone can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think people get so overwhelmed by yep. the whole big climate change yep. thing, and they feel like I can't do anything. And they it's feel too it big is for me. Literally, yes. the weight yes. of the world on people's shoulders, yes. yeah. and they just think, oh, like, that's something really little that you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, it's so it, it is about. Um, taking personal responsibility a bit as well. I mean, I, I, did, I did see an article because there's a lot of finger pointing going on. Yes, there, there is, there is, isn't there? You know, it's it's this person's fault, it's that party's fault, it's this. Um, and, and I read an article that was talking about who's responsible for the situation that we're in, and it basically said we all are. Um, uh, that we're all complicit in this. Yeah, <laughs> we are. <laughs> Which is we again, are. what a bleak way to start the year. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry, folks. Lung it's lung. just really. It's we just have to face up to it. We kind of do, don't we? We've sat on it. Yeah. And 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 you know, turned a blind eye to it for way too long. Yeah. And yep. really, as you said, it's a catalyst. It's it's time we really did start talking. Yep. And yep. doing, not just talking, acting. And yep. the lovely thing about being gardeners yes. is that we can actually make a contribution, a positive contribution to, 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 to this issue. Definitely. Um, so that's, that's you know, that's... And gardeners like us are already making a positive contribution. Indeed, indeed. Um, you know, it's... Uh, and, and, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's a, a, a nice thing mm. um, that we can actually... Grow plants. Yeah, we can call our individual gardens. If we work collectively, we mm. can call our streets. If we really work collectively, we can call suburbs and the entire yeah. cities. Because at a baseline, what plants do is absorb carbon dioxide, which is what our major problem is, carbon yep. dioxide in the atmosphere. Yep. Plants absorb carbon dioxide and use it for energy yep. and spit out oxygen, <laughs> which is exactly what we need. We need oxygen, but I, we breathe out carbon dioxide. I saw one of those memes that said, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could invent a machine? Oh, don't <laughs> you know, this one? If you could invent a machine that pulled carbon dioxide out of the, uh, out of the atmosphere and created oxygen. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that I makes think me, we might have the, the answer to that. That makes me laugh so hard, but makes me so angry. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it might have been ironic. Yes. It, I hope it was I ironic. Hope, I hope it was ironic. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, trees, and, and you know, there's the oxygen thing, there's the carbon store, but there's also the calling. Um, exactly. You know, the, the, the urban calling effect. Yes, yes. Um, and the City of Melbourne are all over this. The City of Melbourne are doing some really great work, um, you know, leading this urban forest uh, strategy. I think they're leading that globally, actually. Mm. They're doing some really yeah. significant work on greening cities and mm. greening the city, increasing biodiversity, but important, which is fundamentally important. Um, but uh, 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 again, you see those sort of heat graphs where 
uh, a tree's there and the tree's not there. And, mm. you know, there can be oh. 35 difference, 35 degrees difference. Yeah. That's right. Between it is a, a so tree. significant walking under a tree on a hot day. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Fern Gully at the Melbourne Botanic Gardens is... You know, arguably the coolest place in Melbourne mm. on 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 a hot day. And what that, what's that about? That's about shade, mm. trees, yep. humidity, moisture. Yep. Yes, all those things. Yes. Mm. But as gardeners, we can plant trees, the right trees yes. in the right place, and yes. I think that's really important to oh, it is. Yeah. To, to you know, the, the the it's really important to do that. But we can plant trees, um, and we can plant a lot of them. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, that's. Great that we can make a positive contribution as a as a, as a, a gardening community. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think you've got to focus on those positives too, because there's been a hell of a lot of negatives coming out in the last month. You know, in Victoria, yeah. in the last few months that you know the, that the east coast has been on fire. Like, yeah. you've got to. Yes, there is negatives, but you've got to focus on the positives and look for the little things that you can do. Otherwise, yeah. it is overwhelming, and yeah. you put your hands up and say, oh, "I can't do anything about yeah, it." Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right, and and you know, in and of itself, fire is not the issue here. I mean, we've got we've got ecological systems all up and down the east coast, and you know, East Gippsland, with some exceptions, are absolutely fire adapted ecological systems. So, you know, mm. fire is a normal part, and in, in fact, they're fire dependent. Um, mm-hmm. You know, exclude fire from these these ecosystems, and you know, it actually affects long term the health of the ecosystem. So. You know, our eucalypt forests actually require fire at intervals mm. um, to, to maintain ecological health. So fire in and of itself is not the issue. What's no. in play here is intensity, frequency and scale. And it's those things that are, that are out of whack this year. Yeah. The fires are burning really, really hot. They're really, really widespread. And they're happening more frequently than they probably should. Mm. And the severity of them is and the severity is increasing right up each there. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And... And, you know, so most of the eucalypts, most of those fire-adapted ecosystems in five, five years' time will be, you know, biodiverse and, and you know, beautiful. Mm. It's the concerning bits is when it gets into warm, temperate rainforest. Or Which it into, has. Into, and, and into the yeah. Alps where... Yes. I mean, the, the alpine ash is a really good example that's been thrown around lately is, yes, that needs to be burnt. Yep. Because it is, it is a eucalypt that is what we call a reseeder. Reseeder. So it won't reshoot epicormic growth after fire. No. It needs to be mature, flowering, and it will spit out seed. Yep. And the seed will germinate in the ash bed and the next generation of trees yep. is the result of the fire. Yes. Take away the fire and there's not the next generation exactly. of trees. Exactly. But... Those trees sometimes need 15 to 20 years before they're mature, flowering and yep. producing fruit and seed. Yep. So if you get a fire in, in less than 15 to 20 years, yep. it could wipe out the entire species. And, and, and that whole ecological system changes. Yes. Yeah. So then you get a whole different group of plants growing back. Yep. A so lot yeah. of heath plants. Yeah, yeah. Your ash forests become stringy bark forests. Yeah. You'll get colonisers in there, for sure. Oh, yes. And like in the Alps, the, the, all the alpine herbaceous plants that aren't all that well fire adapted, if the intervals mm. are too tight, you'll end up with a grassy wildflower system in, in the Alps. All, all, all the things that are okay with fire will be the things that start to dominate that ecosystem. Mm. So you'll get ecological change. You'll still have an ecological system up there and it'll just be different. And you yes. get the sorts of vegetation that adapts or l- prefers high-intensity fires. Yep. yep. So, in other words, if another fire comes through, mm-hmm. is they're going to burn even hotter, even bigger yep. than what, you know, little grasses and forbs. Yep. 
might in a cooler. Yeah, exactly. Bushfire. Exactly. It's interesting. We, as putting a botanic gardens hat on, um, there's been quite a lot of chat with um, both state government and federal government um, about what's the role for botanic gardens in supporting bushfire recovery. And Chris Russell, the executive director of the Cranbourne Gardens, attended. Uh, what was it called? It was called a round table discussion um, a governmental round table discussion with land managers mm-hmm. um, and Chris's role was to go to the to Canberra and speak on behalf of Botanic Gardens as to what our potential roles are um, and there are, look there's a number of roles uh, there's kind of a seed banking role so holding plants as conservation stores in, in seed banks or holding plants in living collections mm-hmm. um, and to that end, you know, the RBGV, the Victorian Gardens, are actually planning to go into places like the Howe Range, which have not yet burned, ahead of the potential for them to burn and, and actually pl- and, and pull out fire-sensitive yep. species. Yep. Yep. Right. Um, you know, zoos are doing the same. There's, yep. you know, the zoos are in far East Gippsland at the moment looking at um, uh, things like bristlebirds and, you know, these highly threatened populations in some of the unburnt areas and looking at establishing captive populations. I mean, the, they, the zoos did this a few years ago with eastern barred bandicoots. They, yeah. they basically took the population out of the wild and put it into um, captivity yeah. as a, a captive breeding popula- um, population. So, you know, there's that kind, of, that kind of work which is happening, that kind of emergency backstop yeah. populations. Backup, backup, backup populations. Backup populations, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, that's, you know, that's confronting just in itself. Yeah. But, but clearly there's a, a, a role for... for the Botanic Garden Network to, to establishing living collections and seed stores. Oh yes, a reserve of, of, of these plants and, and animals mm. um, that, that might be threatened. And the other important thing is that you know some of the botanists that work at the at Botanic Gardens are experts in their field. Um, and in a couple of months' time, to go back into those areas that have burnt that had, that had populations of threatened species and actually see. What's, what's happened to those threatened species as a result of the... That's exciting. The, the, yeah, That's yeah, what excites is. me after fire, is seeing yeah, what's going to come back. Recovery. Yes. Yeah, yeah. recovery. And, and there was a really... At the, um, oh, God. I, I, isn't it interesting? We used to name fire events based on a single day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I've been wondering like, what they're going to call this well, January. it's got to be like severe, severe summer or yeah. something like that. Oh, I'm not I sure. Um, but um, black, the Black Saturday fires, uh, there was a population of a plant called... Um, the shiny nematolepis, and that's the easiest name that I can put on the table. <laughs> <laughs> the shiny nematolepis. It's uh, a, a plant in the the lemon family um, that was known from a couple of populations in the um, uh, in, in ash forests, mm-hmm. and those those fires burnt really strongly and really hard. And there was thought that that population might become extinct as a as a result of the fires. Um, but botanists, the, the good news was that, that we had reserves in the seed store, conservation seed store, um, and there were plants in the living collection at Melbourne Gardens and Cranbourne Gardens, so we, there was a backstop population. Yep. But the good news is that the botanists went back into the field some months later mm. doing that... that um, recon. Recon, mm. and natural regeneration was happening, Great. which was really, really pleasing. Yes, yes. Um, so, that, so there's the, the role for botanic gardens and botanists and 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 there's actually a role for citizen science here as well and i saw 
I'll, I'll have a look in a, a sec, but there's a citizen science project which is looking at species recovery and observations that are people making into the field. Are they the ones that get uploaded to Atlas of Living Australia? I, is it that or is it um, the other one? I can have a quick look. I can there's have an a quick app look. called iNaturalist. That's the one. And they get uploaded that, to, I was looking at it the other day, gets uploaded to Atlas of Living Australia when yep. people, you put up the photo. Yep. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, please. I'm <laughs> glad you did because I was uh, floundering a bit. <laughs> you, you, you take the photo and you know there's got the, um, your lat long of, of where you the, are. The location, and you, yeah. you, you put up what you think it is yep. and then people will say, yes, gotcha. that is that. Perfect. Yes, that is, I think you need two people yep. to determine so, if it's yep. that species. And validate it? Validated. Is that the word? Yeah. Correct. Mm. Um, and then it gets uploaded to this iNaturalist mm. um, uh, app? app. Yeah, you do it through the app Science? and then it gets uploaded to Atlas of Living Australia yep. under that that species record, yeah. okay. and it gets logged into their occurrences. Yeah. So that's a role for citizen science. People, if they make an observation, they see a sugar glider yes. yeah. um, in a, in a, 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 a fire-affected area, and they can actually log um, that observation. Mm. Um, and there'll be plenty of opportunities to, to do some of that plant stuff. Going back to Ash Wednesday... Angier down in Anglesey and Aries Inlet did some amazing work looking at um, uh, the recovery of the, the, the fires in the Otways okay. and, and the, um, uh, the, the recolonisation, the, re, um, the regeneration of, of, of the bushland there and they actually monitored plant species as they came, became more abundant, produced seed and you know, they did a, an amazing citizen science mm. project where, yeah. you know, documenting the regeneration of these forests. Right. Um, and you know these forest systems and heathlands that you know they they will regenerate. Mm. And and it's interesting. You look at the fire map um, on the emergency app, and it's just this whole corner of East Gippsland, yeah. which, which looks like it's in, in, entirely burnt. And you know, in many areas there were it was complete devastation. You know, not flattened. a stick of um, live vegetation left. But in other areas, it was much more patchy. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so a, a, a bit mosaic-y, mm. where there were areas that burned pretty hot, but areas didn't burn at all. Mm. And, um, and that's the, yeah. Because it is such ragged, rugged landscape up there. It yep. is mountainous, up yep. and down, there's valleys and yeah. gullies. So, you know, the fire yep. would have jumped. Would have jumped. Would Ember, have been embers, really spot firing. and Really hot here, a bit cooler there. Yeah. Missed that bit completely. Yep. The I'm, other thing they're saying is that um, the soil... Because the fires were so hot, the soil has been degraded very badly because the bacterium in the soil mm. has been killed off. Yep, yep. And, and that was the assumption with the Ash Wednesday fires, that they got so hot that the soil was effectively dead. But, yeah, um, and it, I think it, similar with Black Saturday too. With Black Saturday, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. I actually meant to say Black Saturday. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Probably um, happened Ash Wednesday too. Probably happened Ash Wednesday too. But, uh, but it, it proves that soils are also quite resilient. And the kind of the ash bed is the, it's the nutrient bed and it's the opportunity to, to it's a reboot, I think. Yes, mm. um, of, of, a, of a, an ecological system. <coughs> but it's been, it's, I mean, really, I mean, I'm, I, I'm really interested in fire, uh, by no means an expert. But I've been reading lots and lots of articles and, yeah. you know, there's been some really, it, it's been, this means some polarised things. In fact, at one point I had to stop looking at social media because it was just making me too upset. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the fire itself is so complex. Yeah. You know, hot intensities, severity, frequency and yeah. all those different yeah. parameters that affect everything. Yep. Yeah. It's complex. It's so complex. It's complex. And, and 
you know, there was lots of experts offer, offering opinions, often fed by daily newspapers. That's right. Really frustrating. Yeah. Yep. I think the other interesting thing to come out of this, though, is that um, a lot of people, and, and happily including people sort of working in land management, are now actually uh, revisiting um, the idea of uh, the Aboriginal slow burns yep. uh, yeah. as, as part of, of our, our bush <coughs> maintenance. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's, and that's really positive and a little bit exciting. Yeah. I think it is. People are open to change. Yeah. Changing. Because they've done a lot in the Northern Territory and they haven't had massive bushfires mm. there that have gone out of control. Yeah. And the thing with your, um, with your slow burns is that it's a cool burn. Exactly. And it also doesn't burn the canopies. Yep. So there is still your, or your, your feed for the koalas and, and for the birds. And, and so you haven't destroyed yeah. the whole environment for, for our wildlife. There's, there's less damage to tree trunks with the slow burn because they less. burn lower. Yes. Well, and you're also encouraging plants that, that respond to cool burns. If the, the hazard reduction burning that we do are hotter burns, so it encourages the types of um, plants that respond or that prefer those those hotter burns whereas with the cool burning it's yeah you're encouraging plants to continue that that like those cooler that's right that, or that can survive those yep. those cooler yep. fires and and i presume that will also aid all those plants uh that um that propagate with smoke yeah yep Oh, absolutely, yes. absolutely. And you still get a little ash bed and yes, all, all, exactly. all of those things. Yes, exactly. You still get all of that, but you're not doing that huge destruction. Mm. The soil biota is completely fine. It might mm. even be stimulated by Exactly. Yeah. And, and we're talking really cool burns, you know, flame heights at, you know, 20, 30 yeah. centimetres and just trickling. Totally trickling manageable and always in a circle so it, it feeds in on itself. It yeah. doesn't spread out of control. Yeah. Okay, we can maybe pop a link onto... The, fa- the Facebook page, but there was, would a, be great. there was a really great article um, that I read yesterday from the Sydney Morning Herald, um, where a fire ecologist Kevin Tolhurst was is kind of reflecting on um, indigenous burning and you know those cool those cool low intensity burns, um, and, and and kind of combining that indigenous knowledge with. Western science. Exactly. And, and just aligning the two together to, yep. say, to say it was inherently a sensible thing. And I really think this is the way of the future. <coughs> yeah. yeah. They have to combine. They have to listen to each other <coughs> and come up with strategies yep. that are the best of both worlds. Because those fire-adapted ecological bushland areas, um, you know, excluding fire is actually an issue. Um, because when fire does go through, they become, you know... It becomes a bigger thing. Yep. Um, you just think whether or not they do those, and I'm definitely not an expert on this, but whether they do those cool burns around immediate towns on, you know, a perimeter yep. of yep. 50, 100 k's, yep. so that in the really rugged bush areas, you can let a wildfire go through it because it's going to need it when yep. the time comes. Yep. But by the time that hot fire hits a cool burned area, the fire will theoretically slow down and be easier to manage, and you'd be able to save. The towns, whether or not that's an, an option of how you do it. But look, potentially. It, the, I think the issue, because the, the, there was a whole bunch of discussion about um, lack of prescribed burning, um, and, and 
you know, there was a, the issue with prescribed burning and the issue with indigenous um, coal burning is that the opportunities, the, the environmental windows to do that, yeah. there's not that many opportunities They're to do that before, before fire's got the capacity to yeah. get away. Yes. Um, there's a thing, it's called a prescribed burn because there is literally a prescription. Um, there's a, a bunch of environmental parameters that, that you can, that you're allowed to actually um, ignite the bush in. Right. Um, and that's fuel, fuel moistures have to be at a certain level. Um, temperature has to be a certain level. Wind, a certain level. Um, hu- air humidity has to be at a certain level. Atmospheric stability. Is, so, so there's literally a prescription okay. that spits out a number. Yes. Uh, and the days where the number is actually correct, uh, they're fewer and fewer each year. Right. Um, the, the days when the environmental conditions are, are, are right, it's often too wet. So, so you mm. try and you try and light a burn, yep, and you just, you just can't get it going. Yeah, okay. The, 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 it's everything's too moist to carry a fire, and then there's this tipping point that if you light it, it might get away. Yes. So, um, it's a, it's really it's, it's a really, really complex hard. thing. It's a, it would be a really hard job to have. Yeah, yeah, oh really, gosh! Really, and then you get hammered by everyone else saying you're not doing it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then there's a bit of, been a bit of commentary about the quota and removing the quota. You know, there was a 250 hectare, thousand hectares, or something like. That there was a, a certain amount of the state that was prescribed to yeah, or burn 5% every year. of the state, five percent of the state, yeah. yeah. Um, and what happened in order to hit that quota, uh. um, you would people would the uh, agencies would in order to hit the number, they were going to going into um, uh, bushland reserves that are easy to burn. Or that didn't necessarily or need didn't, burning. Didn't need that at that interval. Right. Yeah. But yes. re- it was really easy to hit, hit the number, get a drip torch, walk yes. around the edges of a thing, just let it burn in. Yes. Um, so possibly burning the wrong, um, the wrong areas. Yes. Uh, in order to try and hit a number. Yes. Uh, look, that's a line of thought. I, 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 no, I, I've I, heard I don't that know. too. Yeah. I, yeah. As well. yeah. Yep. Um, so removing the number, um, but potentially doing it more strategically. Look, I think. That's got to be the future. Is taking some of that indigenous knowledge and working out how to apply it mm. in mm. a in a changed environmental condition. Mm. Um, that's yeah, because those environmental parameters are they're real. Yeah. So those opportunities to actually um, intervene and light the bush up. Yep. Those the opportunities are, are becoming more and more limited. Yep. Absolutely. I have yeah. a really good link that I'll send to the, for the Facebook page as well about the um, Tathra. Um, what they've been doing up at Tathra as well. Yeah. And been talking to, they've interviewed a, um, uh, I can't remember his name. He was on Insight on SBS a little while ago and what they've been doing around Tathra with the cool burns yep. and there's made a difference and they've seen an increase in biodiversity yeah, right. and stuff that's come back yep. and an increase in plants that don't, res- that um, aren't super hard sclerophyllous yeah, right. rough plants. An it's increase. An increase in, in the softer ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is yeah, it's really good. I, I will send it through. Yeah, so please. People can have a look. It's yeah. all video attached. In fact, let's do that. Let's let's pick a half a dozen um, really good links. Yes, that, that and, are, and that are, are, really is. Yeah, that, yeah. That Pop it on the, the Facebook page for yeah. people to have a look at themselves. Because there's some really nice balanced. Um, uh, there's been some really nice balanced articles that, mm. that are uh, just to help to explain. Because people don't know. I've had people ask me, they're like, why, why are the fires so big? Why are the fires so hot? Like, and they're like, well, what's going what's gonna to happen to the environment now? People are actually really interested, but they just don't know. They don't know, yeah. Yep. So yep. And, and often a source of, of information is a, 
you know, there's some misinformation happening at, at, yeah. at, 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 you know, reasonably high levels. That's right. And it is misinformation. It is. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. What I'm going to do is go to some community announcements. Sure. And then what I'd like both of you to think about is then focusing in for our listeners on how all of this extremes of weather, how this affects the home gardener sure. and what Absolutely. we're doing down here in Melbourne, yep. okay? Yeah, that'd be good. But, um, yes, I will get to a couple of community announcements because there are a few things happening today. If people uh, haven't made up their minds what they're doing, uh, there are a reminder that there are two um, gardens opening today for Open Gardens Victoria. These are both up in Alinda. Uh, the first garden is the Gaythorpe Garden, which is a luscious and colourful private garden of designer Simon Gaythorpe. Now, Simon's garden is a dream in summer. There are borders brimming with colourful perennials and rare and unusual flowering trees and shrubs beckoning you through soft, winding paths. It's a soulful garden to immerse yourself in and relax in uh, many of the garden nooks with a cup of tea or coffee. Uh, And the other uh, garden, which is also um, in Linda, Ungella is just down the road opposite the National Rhododendron Gardens and blends native plants and naturalistic water features against the backdrop of regrowth mountain ash forest. There are also two impressive orchards at uh, Ungella with a selection of more than 70 varieties of fruit. Morning and afternoon tea will be available at, in, at both of these gardens. Uh, now the addresses, uh, Gaythorpe is at 34... Fordyce Road in Olinda and uh, Ungella is at 140 Falls Road in Olinda. Now they're both open 10 o'clock this morning running through until 4.30. Entry to each of them is $8 and uh, children under 18 are free and as I said there'll be morning and afternoon tea at both of those gardens. So, uh, so that's something to do today if you haven't uh, made any plans. Now, coming up, uh, the uh, Australian Plant Society Keelor Plains Group will be hosting a title, uh, a talk entitled Designing Gardens for Wildlife and a virtual tour of the Teesdale Grassy Woodland. Now, these are by Stephen Murphy. He's author of the book and blog Recreating the Country. Now, these are both taking place next Friday, February the 7th. Time is 8 o'clock. The venue is the main hall, Raleigh Road Activity Centre, which is at 54 Raleigh Road in Maribyrnong. And uh, if you want details and the map, you can go to their website, which is apskelawplains.org.au. So it's apskelawplains, all one word, .org.au for that talk on the 7th. Now, coming up down at Cranbourne, uh, you're invited to attend a Sunday morning coffee and cake tour. talk. This is also on Sunday the 9th of February. Uh, there'll be refreshments at 10.30 and then 11 o'clock for the talk. Now, the talk is entitled Things My Garden Taught Me and it's uh, with Gabriel Baldwin, who is author of the book with the same name. Now, in Gay's words... Things My Garden Taught Me is partly a memoir, a record of a 25-year project to establish a bush garden on what had been pasture land at Yanaki in South Gippsland. I have always loved Wilson's Promontory and our family has spent many holidays there, 
The book describes our experiences of successes and failures, pleasures and frustrations, but beyond that, it explores what I believe I have learnt in the process, not just about gardening, but about many aspects of life. Uh, now, it should be a really uh, enlightening morning. The cost, if you're a member of the Friends Group, $20, non-members $25, students $10. And uh, if you want to attend the, the talk, um, you need to book. Go to the Cranbourne Friends website and follow the links for that one. But that's taking place Sunday the 9th of February, 10.30 refreshments, 11 o'clock for the talk, Things My Garden Taught Me. Now, also coming up on the 9th of February, so 9th of February is quite a, a busy day. Um, during National Sustainable Living Festival, uh, you can take a guided walking tour through the ever-developing Melton Botanic Gardens to see plants that tolerate a dry climate and low water requirements. Now, the gentle walk is about 90 minutes. It's going to be followed by a free morning tea. Highlights are the natural, natural feature, the dry land, eucalyptus arboretum, Western Australian and South Australian garden beds, bush foods garden, sensory garden, southern African garden, uh, use of green bin scheme compost, the Mediterranean garden, Californian, Central and South American bed and the indigenous plantings um, along Ryan's Creek and beside the lake. Uh, so, as I said, Sunday 9th of February, 10 o'clock through till noon. Uh, they suggest you arrive at about 9.45. You meet at the depot, which is at 21 William Street in Melton. Uh, you do need to RSVP to John Bentley. His number is 97433819. And leave a message if it's unattended. Or you can email friends at fmbg dot org dot au and uh, the uh, nursery uh, will be open that morning for plant sales and in fact the nursery there at 21 William Street Mel Melton is open 10 through to 1 on Tuesdays, Thursdays and the second and fourth Sundays of the month so uh, that's all taking place on the 9th of February uh, down at uh, Melton Botanic Gardens. Now, um, you can go to their website and uh, you will actually get a full plant list of what they have in the nursery. So that website, which I mentioned before, fmbg.org.au. Just type that in and um, up will come a link to the full February uh, plant list, uh, sales list for that one. So... Uh, it's all happening. Uh, now, another one coming up, and this is an annual event for the Friends of Burnley Gardens, uh, annual St Valentine's Day dinner in the Burnley Gardens, Friday 14th of February, of course, at 6 o'clock, and uh, this will be a lovely dinner under the new Wisteria Arbour. You follow the signs. Dinner will be followed by a talk at 7.30 by Sandra Pullman on Charles Bogue Luffman, he was the first principal of Burnley Horticultural College, a man of all-round abilities. He developed the Burnley Gardens as we largely know them today and he did much to encourage the admission of women students at Burnley. So those details are 6 o'clock for the dinner. Follow the signs to the Wisteria Arbour. Uh, as I said, it all takes place at Burnley College, 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond, 
7.30 for the talk, meet at meeting uh, main building room 10. Uh, dinner cost is $36. The talk, $10 if you're a member of the Friends Group, $20 if you're a non-member. Bookings are essential for that one. And uh, you can go by, uh, it's a tri-booking uh, form. So you go to trybooking.com forward slash capitals B-I-B-K-F or you can phone uh, the Friends Group and their number is 9035-6815. Now just uh, one more I should mention, just a little reminder. There have been quite a few um, events over the summer holidays up at Cloud Hill Gardens. Their next one coming up will be Saturday 22nd of February, uh, which will be Evergreen Ensemble. That will be, they will be playing from 6 till 8.30. Um, they will have, um, it's a string group, um, uh, vocalists. Uh, they will have a singer, harpist as well. It'll be songs based on, on traditional Irish songs. Now you arrive 5 to 5.30. You can have a picnic in the garden. You can bring a bottle of wine. Um, bring some low fold up chairs uh, and uh, book online just go to type in Cloud Hill and it will all come up or you can call their office on 97511009 so that's for 22nd of February that Saturday night alright well it is time uh, we opened up our lines for our listeners uh, if you'd like to join in uh, the discussion, if you have anything to say about these uh, amazing uh, summer we've been living through, how your garden's been faring, what you found that's really helped uh, your plants survive over this uh, very trying condition, or if you want to talk a bit more about bushfires, do give us a call. We've got John Arnott and Chloe Foster in the studio this morning. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Well, if you'd like to have a chat on the outside line, Matt's on the outside line this morning, and the number there is 94198377. Okay, Melbourne Gardens, how do we survive? I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Pam, if you could find the Melton, um, that, yep. that Melton flyer again. Sure. And could you just read out the, the, the collections that the Melton Gardens has? With respect to, it was the Californian and the Indian. Oh, right. Could you yes. just, just go through that list there's again? There's a lot of them. Yeah. Yes. There's a, there's a dryland eucalyptus arboretum. Tick. There's Western Australian and South Australian garden beds. Tick. Bush Foods Garden. Tick. Sensory Garden. Uh, variable. Okay. Southern African Garden. Tick. Mediterranean Garden. Tick. Californian. Tick. Central and South American. Tick. And indigenous plantings. Tick. Right. There's something in that. Um, because good... For Melbourne Gardens. For Melbourne Gardens. Okay. I wondered where you were going with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a resilient garden, um, at the core, it's about really sensible plant selection yes. and selecting species that are really nicely adapted to the prevailing environmental conditions of your garden. That list of plants, if you were in Tasmania... Yes, uh, west coast of Tasmania would be that list of, of um, c- c- zones wouldn't work, right? But it's working beautifully for for, for our climate here. Yeah. So mm. what the Melton Gardens has done is has been really clever. It's selected collections of plants or or, or growing plants from geographic areas 
that are really well suited to to Western Melbourne. And that mm-hmm. particularly grow in areas of low rainfall. Low rainfall. That was one of their main parameters. Correct. They get, oh, is it less than 700 mil or 600 yeah, yeah. mil of rain? It might even be less than that, Chloe. Yeah, it might yeah. be. Of rain a year. Yep. And they were the regions yep. in the world. That matched. That, that. match. Yep. Yeah. So, but if you're in the dandenongs, it opens up a different suite of plants again. So it, it is about selecting plants that are that are really well suited to, to mm. so you're not fighting nature I mean I think yeah. that's the first point about building a summer Absolutely. resilient garden yes. otherwise you're working it's too much hard work yeah it is too much hard work I mean you can always water and you know water well um, mm-hmm. and you can do sensible things like mulching and we'll, we'll talk about that in a sec but fundamentally if you're selecting species that are really well suited and and you don't have to be a a botanist or, a, or understand plant distribution or ecology to make those decisions, you can walk around your block um, yeah. and see what things are actually growing well in people's gardens unirrigated. Mm. And that'll give you all manner of, of um, uh, cues as to you know, some sensible plant choices. You also don't have to just grow cacti. And no, you don't have, no that, and that's right. Think. Yeah, that's they right. They think yeah. Yeah. Like yes. gardening. <laughs> yeah. oh, I better put in the cactus. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, better put in cacti and succulents and, yeah. and have something that looks like Attila Cavatani's garden. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Not that there's anything wrong with no, that, Attila. No, Your garden no, is beautiful. It works. They work. Yes. But it's not for everyone. You don't have no. to do that, though. You don't have to do that. And you think about, you know, the the potential is that uh, a waterwise garden might be less glamorous or less floriferous or... Less lush. Less lush. Not so. Not no. necessarily so. You know, you think about something like a carob tree. Mm. You know, a carob tree is a broad-leafed evergreen, um, you know, it looks like it could come out of a rainforest. It doesn't. It, it's a dryland species or a Mediterranean species. Uh, and there's, you know, things like salvias. Yep. Beautifully lush. Echinacea, the coneflower. Echinacea. A beautiful plant. comes from the dry prairies in the US. Yeah, yeah. Spectacular. Glamorous. Yeah. Beautiful. A million different flower colours. Absolutely. So there's heaps of non-natives, and John and I have done some homework, everyone listening out there, which we don't (laughs) often do for the gardening show. We actually did some preparation. (laughs) We did. We had eight weeks. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't you hit me with a few... Some non-natives or some natives? Uh, whatever. Well, some non-natives, salvias. Salvias. Echinaceas, yep. the coneflowers. Yep. Nepeta, the catmint. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Jerusalem sage. Sure. Um, and echium, which people love, which is... I can't remember it's... Pride of Madeira? Yeah, that one. Is that, is that echium, Pride of Madeira? Is that its common name? Uh, echium candy cans. I think, yeah, I, think, I think it's part of Madeira. Big, yeah. showy, yeah. bluey, purple yeah, 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 flowers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. silvery, yep. silvery green leaves with the little grey hairs on them. So, so tough, dry, what, tolerant plants. What, what about roses? Yeah, 100%. Roses. Roses. Yeah, they thrive on full sun yep. and not a lot of water. Not a lot of water. Yeah. Rosemary? Yes. God, you couldn't get a tougher plant in yeah, your garden, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you can still have, you know, your fancy pants perennial yep. garden. And um, <laughs> James Beatty, who's a regular presenter, creates beautiful gardens to that aesthetic as well. But obviously, our favourites are the, the Australian, Australian natives, which just in my practical, methodical head, just seems to be the most logical, 
uh, plant selection out there, but everyone has their own preferences. They do, they do. <laughs> <coughs> I was at the William Incidentally, it is it is uh, Pride of Pride Madeira. Madeira. Yeah, Excellent. Thanks, Just confirmed that. Thank you. We um, I was at the Williamstown Botanic Gardens um, helping them do some collections planning. They they're expanding the Williamstown Botanic Gardens. Oh, are they? Yeah, oh. this effect into the pine expansion. Well, into the pine plantation next door. All right. So it was always a part of the original footprint of the garden. Yes, right. But never really managed as the botanic garden. Yes. It was just pine trees and, and grass, really. Yes, yes. Um, and Andrew Laidlaw, um, landscape architect at mm. the Royal Botanic Gardens, uh, and I assisted with you know um, a collection planning. You know, what are, what are some opportunities? Mm-hmm. And Andy posed the question: Would it be legitimate for the Williamstown Botanic Gardens to mix? Australian native plants and non-native plants and the answer to that for that garden was absolutely yes and Andy does it particularly well he's really really good at mixing um non-natives with, with, with native plants um, you know a Cassonia spicata sitting next to a, a bottle tree Cassonia being a South African f- really interesting foliage plant yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and a bottle tree from you know, western New South Wales um, with native grasses and some succulents that come from South Africa. So, so Andy, he does a fantastic job of mixing um, natives and non-natives, and I think that's a really interesting. Mm. I think that's a really interesting approach mm. for, yeah. for, for gardens. Mm. Yeah, it, the the common denominator for all those is the right plant. Exactly. Yeah, the right plant. Yep. Drought tolerant. Yep. Whatever. The right yep. plant. So, our, I guess our big tip is grow the right plant in the right place. And how do you get that information? Like, go to a local nursery, talk to them about, you know, the dry-tolerant plants that they have for sale. Yep. Um, Read up on books. I've been at the library this week, and I've brought in a stack of water-wise gardening books. So find some of those books. Do you want to to go through the topics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, Water-Wise Plants and Gardening by Kevin Walsh is... Really easy to read. I pretty much flicked through the whole thing, and massive, a huge chunk of this book that is dedicated to plant lists. That has been reprinted so many it times. Is. It was one of the first to ever come out. And Brilliant. Yes. The first and one of the best. Yes. Yep. yep. Waterwise Plants and Gardening by Kevin Walsh. Um, another fantastic one, which is a really pretty book too, is Dry Gardening Australia okay. by Jonathan Garner. Um, they talk about mulching, the importance of mulching, how to get your soils right. The right types of irrigation too. I don't normally advocate for irrigation because I think plants should be watered while they're younger and then left to once get they get established. established and then they're on their once own. And if it doesn't survive, then that plant isn't meant to be in your garden. But some people, you know, you go away for a long time, you know. Anyway, so these books talk about, you know, the right types of irrigation for a, a um, dry zone for dry zone gardening. Um, Waterwise House and Garden by Alan Windust, okay. which is an appropriate surname. Yep. Um, they're the three that I had. There was a couple of others that I didn't bring in this morning. Um, uh, Drought Resistant Gardening by Beth Chatto and Dry Gardening by Olivier Filippi, which is, um, I think, is a Spanish one. Again, okay. Mediterranean climate. Yeah, sure. So, You've also got volume one <laughs> of yeah. uh, the Encyclopedia of a, And that's a bit it's of a go-to, such isn't it? It's a special book, Yes, yeah, it is a special book. Um, Roger Elliott and David Jones, Encyclopedia of Australian Plants. Yep. Volume one that I have is, has got, is basically your how-to in gardening. Yep. The rest of the volumes are, about, are all about the plants. So volume one, which can be a little bit hard to find, I, got this, I hired this from the library, um, it has a list of plants, so wind-resistant plants, salt spray-resistant, plants for waterlogged soils. Dry shade. Dry shade, which is a huge one. Yep. 
um, heavy clay soils, all those sort of things. So you can work out what you've got in your garden and go, oh, yeah, this is a really shady dry garden or I have a corner that gets really waterlogged and it is possible to find plants that are going to suit those positions. And you should be able, most of them in these books are plants that are accessible for you to track down. It might be something that your local nursery has to order in for you. That's fine. That's what they're there for. Mm. Do you know what I had last night doing my research? What? Volume 1, Encyclopedia of Australian <laughs> Great minds think alike. I was, yes. Uh, 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 yeah. I was uh, lining in bed, listening to the soccer, um, and doing my research for this morning's show. Yeah, <laughs> so it was a little bit last minute. This yeah. was obviously okay. the first one that, that Roger and, and David brought out, but it is so relevant. It's got designs in it for um, windbreak planting, yeah. Pest and disease information, your soil types, um, a whole heap of other stuff. And it's really stood the test of time. And these um, other books often... Yeah, they have. And these other books often have ways that you can design your garden to capture water as well. So smart water planning too. We're going to take a break to go to our first caller. Sure. And we have Anne in Heidelberg. Good morning, Anne. Thanks for waiting. Oh, hi. Go ahead. I just wanted to talk about um, a little worm that I've noticed in my some of the apricot fruit. Right. And I happened to read an article in the local newspaper talking about Queensland fruit fly being found in Greensboro. And there was a photo of it, and it looks very much like the little white caterpillar thing that I found in some of my fruit. So it seems a bit of a concern, I think, that Queensland fruit fly have travelled down here. Mm. So um, I guess I just wanted to phone up about it and find out about treatment. I think there was some links to some guides on what to do with the apricots. I was thinking, you know, Matt, you have to cut the whole tree down or... No, remove the fruit that's been infected. That would be the first point of call and destroy that fruit. And pick up any fruit that's fallen on the ground. Yeah, that's a big yeah, one okay. as well. Because that's harbour. Yes. Is that right? <clears throat> yes. Um, pick up your fruit. There are traps that you can get yes, for fruit you get fruit fly, fly well. traps to hang in the tree. Do, do they catch all, all the beneficial insects? Well, unfortunately, yes, they yeah, do. That's, that's the... That's the bad thing about trapping. But if, if they're ruining your fruit, then um, has it got all the fruit in your tree? No, it's not a lot of the fruit. It's only just the odd one here and there. But I, I've actually noticed it um, over a couple of seasons. And I don't spray or anything like that, naturally, yeah. on, on edibles. But yep. um, I just thought oh, well, I don't know what it is, I'll just leave it. And then I just happened to stumble on this article. So, yeah, I don't know if it's got worse, like I don't find it in a lot of the fruit, but then I just got alarmed reading that it was found in Greensboro and other home gardens were reporting it as well. And, yeah, I thought, well, what what does it mean for the future of just home gardening? And... To our local crops. Mm. I mean, that that is one of the concerns with um, with with climate change is that things that might have been checked by a 
cooler summer or a shorter summer or, or a cold or, winter, or a colder winter. Um, might not be. I mean, uh, just reflecting back on figs, the fig psyllid, which is a, a thing that disfigures the foliage on um, on ficus in parks and gardens. I, I can't recall it ever being in Melbourne. Um, and we noticed the population about 25 years ago at the Melbourne Zoo. Uh, and it's pretty widespread now. Mm. Uh, and that was always a subtropical thing. It was never never found to be in Melbourne. Yes. Mm. So, so how do they get in the trees? Like if I put the traps out, like, I don't know. I don't quite understand the whole process of how do they end up in the fruit. Well, I think they're a flying insect that injects yeah. their eggs into the pulp and, and then there's little maggoty things. And that's what you'd be seeing uh, in the fruit. Yes. So the, uh, the flies have made their way down south and quite often with what a, a lot of um, tropical pests and diseases... Um, in Melbourne, we haven't had them previously because we have a cold winter that, that knocks those those insects off and keeps it in check. Uh. But because our winters have, um, are not as cold as what they used to be, um, we're starting to see uh, some of these northern pests and disease hanging around in Melbourne for a little bit more. But what, mm. the, what the traps do is they, they have a pheromone that attracts the insect into the trap. So it would attract the adult so what you would want to do with your fruit if it is infected is um, destroy it, take it off the tree, destroy it, squash it, make sure that you know all the little larvae are dead, and then yeah. throw throw it in your bin or if you or if you've got a hot compost or something like that. Um, and and hopefully you can you got to get on top of it early. So it's really good that you've that you've um, identified it early before it gets out of control, and hopefully you, yeah. can, you can get a handle on it. So when do you put the traps out? Oh, excellent question. Um, probably so when the adults are flying around lie, laying eggs, maybe springtime. Yeah. A lot, a, you know, citrus gall wasps, you sort of put it in after winter. It, it might be, given that they are indiscriminate, it, it might be when, when your fruit is... Because my understanding is that fruit flies are, are not able to, to pierce hard fruits, and, and when the fruit actually starts to get ripe, it's when they become vulnerable. So maybe... You, you would target it to, to, to coincide with the fruit softening. Um, okay. Potentially just to minimise the, the exposure for non-beneficial insects. Yeah. That, that, would, that would be my intuitive response. But um, look, at, to and be honest... And are they specific? It's, oh, sorry. It, no, that's okay. It's not something that I've um, really tackled myself personally. So we're just sort of going on intuition here a bit. Yes. Yeah. Um, have you had a... If you've got access to a computer, have you had a have you Googled it on the internet? Because there's um, the Agriculture Victoria um, website has some really good information about controlling Queensland fruit fly. I have printed out one page. Yeah. 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 So another you, question is, where do you get where? Like, are they specific traps for fruit fly, or are they generalist sort of? No, they, they, I think they're specific. Yes. And okay. You, and do you know but where you'd if, get that information? Or um, look, I think I think if you go to any of your nurseries, yeah. I think most nurseries stock. Um, okay. Yeah, fruit fly traps. Fruit fly traps. Pheromones yes. or traps. Yes, yeah. that's yep. right. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's so not the end of the earth, and it doesn't mean the end of the apricot. Oh no! Fly. No! 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 Definitely not. 
No, okay. it, it, but it's, get rid it's of a matter of getting, getting rid of it now because they're already infected. So you've got to get rid yeah. of all the infected fruit and, um, and do a bit of research. But next year you will have to do some sort of preventative uh, yeah. measure. So get in early before. Uh, they say they're, they're worse sort of mid-summer onwards. So you need to think about it uh, proactively um, at the beginning yeah. of spring. Yep. Okay, all the food's off that tree now anyway. Okay, so, good. Um, all I need to do then is get the traps and put them out yep, before yep. the fruit's off. And yeah, and just check, there's, as I say, there's nothing left on the ground underneath. Yep. It's infected Okay, in thanks way. a lot. Okay, then. Okay, all the best for that. Okay, bye. 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 Okay, that number, if you'd like to uh, join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155 to speak to John or Chloe. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Matt on the outside line, 94198377. I passed you uh, a list of the the plants for sale up at Melton because that that gives you a really good uh, quick list of a lot of these um, uh, dry climate Plants yep. that are suited for the Melbourne region. Let's, and let's go through a couple. There's, um, uh, there's some corias and there's some really terrific corias. Um, Coria glabra is extraordinarily oh, yes. tough. Yep. Um, how I came up with my list is things that are performing in my garden largely unirrigated. Ditto. And I've been looking at revegetation sites uh, and what's persisted in revegetation sites along places like the Gardener's Creek and... Um, because a lot of revegetation plants have actually dropped out in the last couple of years due to extended dry. Mm. Coria glabra has been one of those things which has hung on mm. in most uh, revegetation sites. Mm. So it's extraordinarily uh, tough. But the um, uh, February 2020 plant sales at Melton, they've got Coria pulchellas um, for, for sale. But Coria alba yeah. is also pretty strong. And, you know, a lot of the Corias will, will, will persist. It, you know, Reflexa might wilt and look a little bit sad, but they'll spring back. Yeah, I've got a Reflexa decumbens cross the Tucker Time dinner bells in my garden. Nice. And it's in a few different spots. And it's, it, it sometimes, if, if I go away for three weeks over summer, it'll wilt. Yeah. But you water it again and five it's minutes later it's popped back, back up. Yep. Yep. Corias so are fantastic. Corias are really good. And yep. I think we both had Corias on our list. I believe so. Yep. Yeah, I don't know, I didn't write it down, oh, what there you an go. idiot. Oh, All right. Am I professional? <laughs> um, there's uh, Darwinias. Uh, Darwinias are pretty pretty tough. And uh, Darwinia citriodora, we've got a few forms in the Cranbourne Gardens, a little low one and a, a much more upright hedging one. But they're pretty great and they smell marvellous. They smell beautiful. Yeah. The, the ground cover prostrate form is beautiful it's great. as well. Yep. Yeah. So it's quite dense, so they're good to... Um, they're good to suppress the weeds, yep. yeah, and yep. they'll also keep the soil cool as well. Uh, the Melton Gardens are selling a whole bunch of eremophilas or emu bushes. Um, and a word of caution with eremophilas is that they'll take the dry, but yeah. they won't take the wet. No. Yeah. Many of them won't. Eremophila maculata is pro- probably the most wet tolerant, um, but a lot of eremophilas will sulk in the middle of winter when it does get wet and cold. Yeah. Um, so there's a so bunch... So if, if you live in the west of Melbourne, Eremoff would be fine. It's something that's a, it's a bit of a risky choice for the east of Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, I've got a grafted Eremophila yeah. nivea, um, which is uh, flowering again in my garden, which I was really pleased with. Wow. I, I know it is a late winter-spring yep. flower, and I did clip it back after it flowered, and it's just 
in the last couple of weeks thrown another round of flowers, which has been really pleasing. Mm. Now, it's a gorgeous uh, eremophila. I think there might be a photo on the Facebook page of, Good. of this And, of course, the other thing is that's, that's got a silver-grey leaf. Yes. And, and we've always been, been taught that, you know, most silver-grey leaf foliage yep. um, are more adapted to yeah. hot, dry. Because they reflect the heat. And if they're hairy, like this one's beautifully soft and downy, mm. um, it actually helps to retain moisture. Um, so it you know, slows transpiration down. So it, it's moisture's not lost to, uh, to the atmosphere out of the, out of the leaves of the plant. Um, and air, sorry. Please, please. Aeromophilus have the most showy, beautiful flowers. Oh, yeah, they're So gorgeous. they're worth, they're worth a risk. They are worth a risk. So yeah. there's a long a list of aeromophilus here. Huge amount. 20 odd aeromophilus. Pinks, on, on purples, the list. yellows. Um, because the Melton Gardens are holding the collection of uh, dryland eucalypts, there's a big long list of some very, very beautiful um, uh, eucalypts in here, including one of my favourite, which is the fuchsia gum, which is eucalyptus. Oh, yes. I so, love the yeah, fuchsia gum. My, my favourite on the list is eucalypts woodwardii, the lemon-flowered gum. It is the brightest yellow you'll ever see. Yep. It's just beautiful. Yep. The eucalypts that they have... Buck the the stereotype that people have of eucalypts. <laughs> they really do because they are small growing eucalypts. Gorgeous. That won't like crush your house or your <laughs> car, which people seem to think every gum tree does. Yeah. Showy, showy flowers as well. They're absolutely beautiful yep. plants. So you like you just need to go to Melton to see the eucalyptus arboretum. Yeah, it's a must. Oh, yeah, it is must. really is a must. Yeah. And and if you if you go along to their their morning open uh, walk, um, talk to John, talk to the other people in the, the nursery, talk there, yeah. to the other volunteers mm. because um, they will be so full of ideas for other plants that you can use. Yep, 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 for sure. Um, there's a bunch of grevilleas here. And I yeah, know that you've had some grevilleas. Grevilleas was on my list. I couldn't pick one, and there's a number at the Melton Gardens as well. They're incredibly tough plants, and they flower throughout almost all year. They're just, they're brilliant. Yep. I've, Mum's got them in her garden in the hottest, clayiest, most westerly point, and they just keep flowering and they just keep growing. And grevilleas come in all different shapes and sizes, yep. all different flower colours. There, there is guaranteed to be one for every spot in the garden. Absolutely. And they're fantastic for bird attraction. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yep. Full of nectar. Yep. So you're providing you're providing food for for your birds mm-hmm. at the same time. And a lot of them are some of them are prickly too. Yes. Which when I was little I didn't like, but it's really good protection and shelter for little birds. It's as great. Well. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Hakeas similar to similar category to um, to the grevilleas. Yeah. They're, they're really tough in the garden, and there's yep. a bunch of them there. And I had hakeas on my list. Yeah. Uh, and they've got quite showy fruit. Got show, well, yeah, absolutely. Nuts. Yeah, yep. nice finch flowering. Uh, salt bushes, not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. Um, but there's some really good salt bushes. They're I, very popular in the floral industry now. Oh, as oh yes. Bouquet. No, as no, foliage. foliage. Yes. Yeah, foliage fillers. As foliage fillers. Yeah, a yeah, lot right. of people, they don't realise they've got salt bush in there. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay, but cool. they won't put it in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> so salt bushes being uh, regodias and marianas and atroplex. atroplex. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're probably the main the main groups of, of yeah, the salt bushes. They're a beautiful, you know, f- a foliage plant, and the little oh, encalina, encalina has really cute little coloured fruits on it as well. Little little red, yellow, yep. blackberries. Yep. Um, I had Oliria. Teretifolia and Phlogopapa, so native, some of the native daisy bushes. Yeah. As, as pretty solid in a dry garden. Illyria lorata is um, 
indigenous to Melbourne area yep. as well. So yep. that grows all through underneath gum trees. Anything that grows underneath the gum trees, we're probably going to go. Probably going to because that's yep. dry and shade. Yes. Yep. Uh, there's some pelargoniums. Petrosperum angustifolia is a really interesting small uh, weeping tree. Uh, I had that on my list as something that you might consider growing. Very, very beautiful, full of orange berries, but the advantage of this Petosporum is it's not weedy. It doesn't have yeah. the same potential Great. to be like Petosporum undulata. Yes, is, yes, yes. has really got away in the bushland. That sort of Petosporum you probably get from a native plant sale. Specialist. It's not something that's easily accessible at a regular nursery, but it'd be um, worth looking out for. It, it is on the <coughs> February 2020 Melton um, list, That's so you get right. it from Melton if you get out west. It's probably worth the trip. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably worth the trip. Uh, and it's interesting because the Melton Gardens is not just about natives. There's salvias in here, um, and uh, there's a South African helichrysum. The Tagetes marigold. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's, That's cool. That's a lovely plant. That's the um, smells Mexican like Mexican daisy. That, I think they. Don't they call it Mexican oh, yeah, daisy? Yeah, Mexican daisy, yes. yeah. And is that the one that smells like... Um, Tagetes, Tagetes, <laughs> yes. It's, it's got a very funny smell. Fruit salad? Is that the one? Yes, yes. Think, it's, yeah. it's not to everyone's liking, no. John. <laughs> no, <laughs> <right>? So <laughs> let's not worry about... The, no, we won't uh, worry about no. that. <laughs> and uh, and, and Westringers. Westringers were on the, on, the, on the list as well. Westringers being incredibly tough. Yep. Um, you know, native plants that you could clip into a ball quite easily. Oh, yes, have a really absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so plenty of plants uh, at the Melton Gardens that, are, that are, are, are really good for the drought garden. Well, I think our next caller wants to add to the list. We have uh, Virginia online. Good morning, Virginia. Hi. Hello, Hi, Virginia. Virginia. Hello. Hey, yes. Virginia. Hey. I've got a question, but just quickly before I ask my question, Salt bush and rabbits, in my experience, are a shocking combination. Yeah, certainly. That's, I, That's I, I, everyone I, I've planted has disappeared. Yeah, they're highly, highly palatable. That's, and just reflecting on the Red Sand Garden project, that's why we took the Rigodia spinescens out because they were just being chomped by our rabbit population. So, yeah, yeah no, I, I wholeheartedly agree that um, there's, if you've got rabbits and you've got um, salt bushes, that they're probably rabbit food. And when I jillarooed back in the early 70s, the old geezer on the property up in Western Australia said, if you saw a black rabbit, you had played proportion. I've seen black rabbits. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, we I have, have two questions please, for you guys. Please. Mm-hmm. Number one, chef cat courier, can I grow it facing west? It, it, I've seen it in a couple of... It's not something I would grow facing west but i've seen it in a couple of dry tolerant plant lists in the last week or so yeah okay yep it might be worth a shot but i think you'll have to water it you'll have to water it in the uh, quite a bit in the early stages to get it established it's it's growing glabra would be a glabra would be a better selection glabra would be a no-brainer yep that 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 that'd tolerate facing west um without any issues at all not possibly um, it's a different shaped thing um not quite as upright and Possibly not quite as interesting, depending on on your perspective. Um, the chef's cap being, a, you know, a, a really interesting flower, and the advantage yeah. of the chef's cap is it's got that um, scented, you know, sweetly scented flower, which is. Oh, it's a gorgeous plant, chef's cap. And, yeah. and and the foliage, yeah, yep. Yeah. And then my next question is: I have got heaps of native passion fruit. Are they edible? Passiflora cinnabarina. I think so. Yeah. Um, what did you get from Karanga? They're 
yes, they are edible, um, but don't expect them to taste like a Nelly Kelly. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, of course, you can you can eat them, but they're not. Um, they're but not very exciting. That, well, mm. you, you'd be probably fine on some ice cream. Um, but, oh, right. Okay. But, but straight oh, out of, oh, of sugar. I might go back to it. I'm just re- reflecting on the butterfly house that both Clavi and I were involved because that was a food plant that we used to grow for the butterflies. Yeah. Uh, and when we were extracting seed years and years and years ago, I can still recall the taste of Passiflora cinnabrina thinking, <laughs> you know, that's not going to make it onto too many bush tucker lists. <laughs> well, I thought <laughs> it's not on easy. the bush tucker list. No, it's no. because it's edible but not eatable. Yes. <laughs> it's got a really cool flower and it's really easy to grow though, so keep it. Yeah, keep it. Yeah. Oh no, I wouldn't think it's it's right up the top of my grevillea, you know, fifteen foot up in the air and it's fabulous. And Virginia, while we've got you, I mean, we've placed a, a, a bit of an emphasis just through personal bias <laughs> <laughs> uh, on um, dry plants for native with a, a, a native focus. Um, what would be your top five? Just off the top of your head, question without notice. Sorry about that. Well, definitely for me, the best back in drought days, I mean, I have had more water this from November to now, more water than any other year in the 16 years I've been here. Is, is it that is right? quite green in the Warburton yes. Valley at the moment. Really? Yeah. I am not only green, I'm wet. I can dig. Really? <laughs> Last, the November before, I hurt myself falling off the spade because I was jumping on two feet because it was so hard. Right. I was digging yesterday and I was digging to worms. They hadn't all gone to China. <laughs> really uh, so so re- reflecting on drier uh, seasons. Yes. Well, definitely during the drought, the best tree for me was the Judas tree. Surfus siliquestrum. Siliquestrum, yes. Absolutely no doubt. It was fantastic. And that's a lovely flowering small tree? It's a lovely small tree. And, I mean, the the smoke bushes were pretty good. Um, the smoke it, bushes it and in the, cotton, the cottonus or cottonus? Yeah, cottonus. Yeah. But the, the, the Judas tree was by far the best tree in my garden, except for the big old guns. Uh, yeah. It was doing better than um, the than the quarter of the natives as well. It was just it ignored the drought. Yeah. Okay. So it was fabulous. Mm. And then some of your um, some of your salvias. Yeah. Okay. Any salvia that hasn't got a big leaf, the big leaf salvias are not they usually come from higher up. Yeah. Right. Um, and then of course, I mean, I've got a lot of lot of na- natives in my garden. I mean, one of my most favourite is, is I've got a, a sort of a weeping hakea and it is so, so beautiful when it's in flower. It's the, just about, at that time, it's the best plant in the garden. Really? Do, do oh, not, has, you... it, has it got the pin, is it the pincushion hakea? No, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite red. It's not pincushion. It's fabulous. But one of the other things that completely has surprised me, because I planted it, I don't know why, I obviously was, uh, you know, I was having an incident, but I planted a couple of um, Williamsii camellias facing west getting the north wind. They are now, after pruning, they're 15 foot high, they flower absolutely beautifully every winter, and they just float through every summer. Camellias are super tough. I've oh, got yeah. some japonicas in the garden that face west. They're really old and established, but they don't even look like they're being touched. No. 
And they don't yeah. get anything except yeah. for rainwater. Yeah. And I do think the Williamsii, which were bred in Dorset or Devon in the 1900s, the Williamsii's were the best. Mm-hmm. They've got lovely flowers. They'll take, you know, they don't, you know, quite a lot of your, your camellias will, bit of rain and they just go, the flowers go off. Right. Yeah. They don't do that at all. And yeah. they just floated through. Yeah, the other one in my garden that's that's just looking stunning at the moment. I've got a few of them dotted round. Are the nephophias, of course, the red yeah, hot right. pokers. Yeah. Right. They're just they're just in their element, and the birds are loving all yep. the nectar in those. Yeah, and I love the yellow ones, Pam. Yes. I love the yellow red hot pokers. Yes, mm, I think they're beautiful. And things for me that are absolutely hopeless are things like cannas. Yeah, oh, sure. yeah, they're plants that you, you put in if you've got a little bit of water logging, aren't they? They'll grow in water, won't they? Yeah, yes, yes they, they will. <laughs> but they're meant to be perfect in, 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 a, in a garden that is either completely dry and then floods. You know, that's yeah. what, what they use them for in the botanic gardens in Melbourne. Possibly but the solution. Me, I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. It, yeah, in the botanic gardens in Melbourne, they're probably still getting additional irrigation. Probably. Yes, they probably are, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, with permanent... Yeah. So, but anyway, they're yeah. hopeless to me. They're out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, terrific. They're best in the lowest corner of a garden where they get run off. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's for me the lowest corner that would get run off would be about half a mile away. I know. So that's no good for <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that doesn't work. <laughs> well, I, thank you for that, gang. I got to Jeff Cap, even though I wanted to. I'll, I'll do the Glabra. Yep. Put it somewhere else. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up, we're going to Ian in Sunbury. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, guys. Hey, how well, you going? Ian. We're well, Ian. Yes. Um, look, I, uh, I have I've spoken to you before about, about this, but I, I just thought you've been talking about all sorts of um, uh, really hardy plants. I thought I'd give you a call just to kind of refresh my memory. But I've got um, a plot in my garden, which is about nine metres by about five, so it's a long sort of thin plot, and it's on a, on a slope. So the whole thing's sort of sloped up to a up to a fence. Now the whole face of this all faces north, and it really cops, you know, really cops the, the, the heat. Um, and of course, it gets a bit of um, afternoon sun from the you know the, the sun goes across to the west and. The, the, you know, it gets a bit of sun from the tree outside, and uh, sorry, shade from the tree outside, and the and the fence in the late afternoon. But apart from that, it just cops it all day. What's your soil um, like, Ian? Oh, it's Sunbury, so the soil. <laughs> yeah. Not not real flash. So we've got, yeah. uh, about, got about yeah, clay. But we've got it's sort of fairly powdery. I don't know. I, right. I can't describe it, but uh, but 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 only uh, you only go down about. Oh, Two or three hundred meters, and it's just bang. You've, you're straight into really hard clay. Yeah. Sure. So it's yeah. So it it it, it really needs. Um, I'd, I'd say I'd have to really treat the, the soil with a fair bit of gypsum. I'd think to try and quite to try and break the clay underneath. Not necessarily. You could put a little bit of um, lime over it, but um, yep. decent mulching will help break the clay yep. down as well by creating a layer of organic matter. Yep. Um, we're thinking on a slope that's something that you're going to want a really decent coverage of plants for. So some thick ground covers. Almost yeah. like a living mulch. Yeah, like which yeah, are yeah, a living yeah, mulch. That's what I that's what I prefer to do. So because I've got a I've got a I've got a section of garden at the front which is flat, which I've 
I've put a whole heap of sort of ground covery plants. You just went to that big store down the road and grabbed uh, <laughs> some of those Jeepers Creepers things and thrown <laughs> them under, under, under my... Um, uh, I've got some established shrubs out there and I've just thrown them under as, as sort of um, understory, you know, and just let them, let them, let them spread around. Yeah. Um, and I'd, li- I'd like to do... I'd like to sort of create something similar in the, in the other plot. I'd like to put some shrubs in, you know, that might grow up to maybe a metre, a metre and a half, and then sort of do an understory of, of, of ground cover. With the, under, um, with, the, with the understory, we had a, a bank at the nursery at Cranbourne, which was really clay, um, and we planted into that clay bank a thing called Grevillea Royal Mantle. Mm. Uh, and right. it, it performed quite beautifully in, 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 in that uh, clay condition. It was moist because it was getting some runoff from the nursery, yeah. um, yep. p- possibly even bordering on wet, but... Um, uh, Grevillea raw mantle uh, might be a reasonable choice. Yep. I was also thinking yep. of a couple of other species of Grevillea. Um, curvy loba, which has a really nice cream flower and bright green leaves. Gorgeous thing. And right. Grevillea obtusifolia yeah, right. as well. Um, okay. the, the ground cover Grevilleas, like they're quite, um, they're quite thick, so they should right. like they should cover it really well. And they're long yeah, living. Yep. They're long living too. Yep. Um, okay. But some yep. shrubs, um, yep. calistamine, so bottle brush, yep. um, gotcha. or the Malaluca paper barks. Um, just just right. watching your height. Yeah, yep. yeah. So yeah, you can get, okay. again, and similar with, you, you can get grevilleas in small, medium or large shrub size as well. Um, yep. and, and it's the same with, with the bottle brushes and the paper bark. So you ca- they come yeah. in a number of different um, sizes. What about... Um, um, uh, native um, hibiscus. Probably would pre- appreciate better drainage. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. I think right. it might look a bit straggly all the time if you put it yeah, in, okay. in that soil. Yeah. That, that no. said, we did okay. we did put a pink flowered splendens, a hibiscus splendens, into some pretty clay soil in a in one of our clay areas, and they performed mm. okay. They performed okay. Okay. Um, right, okay. Because I want to, I want to put a couple of taps up towards towards the fence. I'd like to put some bigger shrubs just to cover the fence up, basically. Okay. Um, well, there's maybe yeah. some other options for larger things. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of wattles that do really well. Um, yep. okay. Acacia bormanii, which uh, I can't remember the common name. Snowy of. river wattle. The snowy river wattle. So where that grows yep. in the snowy is like rough, rocky, clayey soils. Yeah. So they probably yep. do really well. And they're really nice. That I actually had yeah. that in my top. You did. I yeah. had that in my top. Um, we so, haven't talked about wattles. No. So acacia bormanii. Yeah. Really solid garden plant, and, and likely tolerate those conditions really well. So we we uh, did the Melton Gardens and have some ideas or some things down there or. Yep. Um, where, they, yeah, so they did. I don't think they had acacia bormanii. It doesn't look like they had any wattles on their list. We're missing okay. the A list. Ah, uh, we're missing the A list. Um, but acacia bormanii, you should be able to get from most um, yeah. most nurseries. It's a reasonably common thing in cultivation. Yeah, and they yeah, sh- okay. if not, they oh, should right. be able to order it in for you. Yep. There's also wastrangias, yeah. which are really reliable plants. Yeah, you bet. Um, yep. uh, some of the the Coria lorenziana, but it might be a bit yep. too sunny for might that. Might be a bit too sunny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's more yeah, yeah I've got. I've got a. Um, there's not much in there at the moment. I've pulled a lot of the crappy stuff that they had in there. There's a few of those white daisy sort of things. Um, I've I've put a rock rose in, uh, and I've put some um, uh, put one of those in. That seems to be growing. That seems to be doing okay. Yeah, they're really tough plants. Well, it, yeah. this yeah. might be a nice example where you could actually mix um, 
nineties uh, and non-natives. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, that's, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I, I'm not. Uh, you know, a, a native Nazi or anything no, no. like that. No. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, no, I'd, I'd be more than happy to mix it up. I mean, it doesn't worry me. Um, it's all gonna. It's all gonna work if, if, if it does. You know. Well, potentially, so, potentially yeah. have a look at some of those. Uh, as Virginia mentioned, small flowered sal- salvias as well. Yes, they'd, I was going to say the oh, yeah. salvias. They'd yeah. be ideal in that context. They would be. There's yeah. also yeah. a fantastic nursery out near. Um, it's called Lamley Nursery on oh, yeah. Bendigo, Ballarat, and okay. uh, in yep. um, Ascot, out that way. Right. John's just yeah, going to it, it, it is Ascot. It is, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, Lamley I've been Nursery. To go up to, uh, yeah. What was that? Yeah, so Lamley Nursery grow a whole heap of. Um, they specialise in oh, dry climate Dry plants. climate plants, and they have right. a, ho- a, heap, a heap of display gardens as well. So, yeah. okay. Um, you can actually see those plants growing, and they've got uh, they're absolutely yep. beautiful gardens. And the, right. they get the extreme heat in summer, but they also get the really heavy frosts um, cold. and cold in winter as well. Yeah, so yep. and they're up at uh, where, where did you say they were? Ascot, uh, Leicester's Road, Ascot. Um, and according to Dr. Google, they open soon. <laughs> Ascot, that's, that's, that, did you say that's up near Ballarat somewhere or something? Yeah, I think it's near Ballarat. I've been there in, on a day trip. Yeah, okay. Bendy well, I'm in Sunbury, so I'm sort of... Yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's not it's far it's from you. It your side of no. the... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, um, that's, 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 that all sounds a good, good point. If you just type so, in Lamley, L-A-M-B-L-E-Y, it'll all yep. come up. Sort of between... Well, Lamley, was it? L-A-M-B-L-E-Y. Why? Okay, I'll give them a try. Because yeah. um, uh, yeah, no, I want to. Uh, it's all looking very bare and horrible at the moment. But once the weather kind of cools down a bit, I might, or towards spring maybe, I'll start uh, plonking a few things in, and it'd be good. Yeah, well, that's um, something that we haven't yeah. talked about is um, planting time as yeah. well. So I look, get some mulch on as as soon yep. as you can, so that you can start okay. creating a layer. And whatever rain we do have, you know, it'll hopefully start helping break down right. that clay. Yeah. So I'm get like, get your mulch on and do your soil prep. Yeah, because I've mulched up a couple. I've got a, one of those motorised mulcher things, and I've mulched up a heap of uh, um, tree branches and things. Yep. So it's fairly heavy mulch. Yep. So that might work well. That's fine. Um, it's, so it's pretty. Yeah. It's pretty green mulch then at the moment. Oh, it's, it's pretty. It, no, a lot of it's dried out, so okay. it's pretty sticky and that. But it's um, uh, it's sort of heavyish, you know. So it probably wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't get blown around too much. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, Ascot is between Creswick and Clunes, sort of. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so gotcha. Um, um, all right. And it, would, there's a thing called clay breaker, or even some gypsum wouldn't. It wouldn't hurt yeah. to throw a, just a layer of that down underneath yeah. the mulch. Yeah, I've got, I've got a bag of gypsum here, so yeah, I might wouldn't, wouldn't, hurt throw, it wouldn't hurt to throw that down. But I wouldn't, I certainly, we wouldn't be planting in this heat. No. Not at no. all. No. Really I, ideally, ideally autumn time is yes. the best time for planting. Yep. So, so yep. work on your soil preparation first. That's the important yep. thing because yep. no everything comes from yep. the soil. Yeah, there's a plant. The other, the other the other thing I was going to just very quickly ask you is um, uh, on the other side I've got uh, I've got that plot and then I've got the chook house with the girls there and then in the, in the other um, uh, uh, the corner of the, of, of the um, garden which is a lot flatter um, is an area for, that I want to use for a vegetable garden. Um, now I guess the question is, do I work this soil up and try and use the soil that's there, or do I put raised beds in? Probably raised beds, but you wouldn't. You'd only need to you know raise it a sleepers. You know, one sleeper height. Yep, and then just throw a heap of good mulch and, yeah. and good, uh, good, good uh, organic material and good soil yeah. in there and work, work it up. Work yep. the soil that you've got 
to what you can, but I think raise is probably the better way to go. Yeah, okay. Just well, it, it, it's yeah. going to be quicker. So yeah. if you're anxious yeah. To, yeah. to starting to get planting, a raised bed will, yeah. will be a lot quicker than, than having yeah. to wait for working your soil up good enough for veggies. But I would also, yeah. I would also um, uh, as well as putting lots of organic matter in, I would mulch your raised bed with, um, with pea straw because that will start yeah. getting lots of nitrogen Activated. into the yeah. soil too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, now I've got I've got a fair bit of compost here, and of course the, the girls uh, girls contribute towards it as well. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 So um, yeah, all right, Ben. Thanks very much, guys. No worries. Okay, good luck. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Okay. Uh, well, guess who we've got online? Hey. We've got uh, our good friend John from Milton Botanic Gardens. Hi, John. Oh, good morning, Pam, John, and Chloe. Good morning, John. John, how are you, mate? Uh, Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for um, the mention of Melton. It's been uh, most welcome. It's really made my morning. <laughs> yeah, it's been the Melton Botanic Garden um, promotional reference. Look out for morning. an invasion <laughs> of 3CR listeners, John. <laughs> uh, I'd probably say that's most welcome for us. Good. But uh, we, we, I, we did start uh, back with Rob Small doing our concept plan in 2006, and as, as John said there, um, it was about um, plants that would be suitable to survive in the Melton climate. And I will, I'll shock you that our rainfall is um, less, for about 450 millimetres in a good year. Yep. Yeah, and we wow. struggled to get to 300 last year. Right. Uh, we, we finally managed to make it to 327 millimetres. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what have you had much in this last month? We've had a few storms come through. But oh, did you this, get yeah, any? we probably had probably had too much now. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> right? No, things have kicked along. We can just see that growth, plus the weeds, of course. But yeah. yeah. The we, we've been planting um, even indigenous plants um, right through the whole year. So we we planted um, the other day. Uh, we planted in late December. Uh, we water the indigenous plants about once every three weeks. Um, we just put the pump in the lake and um, water them from there, or we, we're hand-watering, unfortunately, using potable water, but usually about once every three weeks. And the indigenous plants at the moment are just booming along. Yeah, um, that's right. But I'd, I'd like to really mention a couple of new projects we've got this year in case anyone would be really interested, because we're always seeking volunteers and help. But we, um, council got a $20,000 grant and we can, we're adding to that, uh, to do a, an Eastern Australian dryland area based on the bioregions from outback Queensland, outback New South Wales, and right down through the Mallee Wimmera area into the Victorian Volcanic Plains. Oh, cool. And that's a fairly larger, it's wow. like a whole yes. new project. Wow, okay. that we've is. Had yeah, and we, we've had really good support from uh, Warren War Boys at Cranbourne in going through all those bioregions and putting the plant lists together for us. Yeah, uh, so now we're trying to source plants. Yeah. So, so that's one project. And then we got a land care grant of $10,000. Uh, so my wife, Jill, runs the Lakers Group and we'll be finishing off the last couple of hundred metres of planting around the lake and then extend that um, with probably a she-oak type forest and grey mm, box lovely. along the freeway edge. 
Um, and then we managed to get a federal government um, environmental grant late last year of $20,000 to do up a really beautiful um, small lake that we have in the south side of that. Uh, so that'll be all indigenous plants to Melton. Uh, and Jane Edmondson's uh, very kindly donated a recycled plastic seat for um, that area as well. Lovely. So, so Jane's our patron. Yeah. Um, we should get you to run a workshop on how to write a successful grant application for yeah. a regional botanic gardens, John. You're, um, <laughs> you are uh, oh. an absolute ripper at being able to tap into um, little pots of money here and there. Yeah, well, well Jill's, Jill's done quite a lot, um, so we've put some got a grant to do some directional signage within the garden and that's looking good um i've um with working with council uh, they got the uh, botanic regional botanic gardens grants that the victorian government put out so we're getting um solar powered street type lights right. to be placed along our concrete path fantastic, fantastic. john you mentioned uh growing victoria's regional botanic gardens grants program it, yes it's a it, look a, a huge shout out to um, to the state government for really getting in and backing regional botanic gardens oh, in the state. Yes. Um, the state government have put aside $4 million to be just out in two grant runs, uh, grant uh, rounds. Um, and just before Christmas, the, the first rounds were, were announced and Melton, as you mentioned, John, was successful. But um, you were successful alongside the Shepparton and Botanic Gardens um, and, and that's about supplying water to the Shepparton and water. Botanic Gardens, a really critical project. Uh, the Benalla Botanic Gardens got a grant uh, to upgrade um, some, some amenities uh, at, at that garden. Bendigo Botanic Gardens got a grant of $255,000 um, for a, a new visitor centre design. Uh, Castle Main Botanic Gardens um, uh, looking at doing some interpretation of the collection. Colac Gardens, Dandenong Ranges Botanic Garden, Urawa, Hamilton, Kawara up in the hills. Kyneton Botanic Gardens, um, a grant of $30,000 to contribute towards a conservation management plan. Great. Melton, Maryborough Botanic Garden, Sale Botanic Garden, the System Garden at the uh, Melbourne University. There's a new Botanic Gardens in the Grampians, Warrnambool and Williamstown were all recipients of grant money. Fantastic. Wow. Isn't that fantastic? That is brilliant. That, isn't that fantastic? Yes. And, and for all manner of, of really interesting programs. So I think that's going to be a real, a real kick, um, uh, a real... A real, what's the word I'm looking for? Boost. A boost is what I'm looking for, for for regional botanic gardens across the state. And there is another round of funding which is um, coming up in June, June this year, uh, for the residual monies. But mm. it's, uh, yeah, it's so, yeah, a shout out to the state government um, for really getting in and backing regional botanic gardens in wonderful. the state. It is wonderful. Yes. Yeah. yeah that is really wonderful and um, it's certainly appreciated and we'll kick things along. Um, I'll just also mention, if I could, that um, you mentioned Kevin Walsh's book. Well, Kevin Walsh did the plant selection and plant placement for our Mediterranean garden oh, bed. Okay. All right. So, and he's, he's been really great, and he's been watching the garden grow and, and talking about how we sh- and helped us with how we should focus on collections and which ones. Mm. Uh, so on National Eucalypt Day coming up in March, we've got a specific tour by, with Barb and David Pye Fantastic. of just the Eucalyptus Arboretum. So that'll be really special, but I'll send some info on that. Great. And um, we, we do get nursery visitors from all over the place. So just on Thursday, there was someone from Castlemaine came down and someone from Frankston. Excellent. Okay, so, brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. Great. Yeah. 
So we, we do have some aromophiles that will grow in some of the wetter areas too. Yeah. <laughs> What's um, when was National Eucalyptus Day, John? I think it's about the 24th of March. 23rd of March. <laughs> 23rd. Oh, you, we've got our talk, uh, our walk the next day. Right. I think it's Chloe's favourite day of the year. <laughs> okay. I know someone, two other people <laughs> yeah. whose favourite day of the year is. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. That's, and, and that's an outstanding feature of the um, uh, Melton Botanic Garden is the eucalyptus oh. arboretum, which is nationally registered with uh, Plant Trust. It's been a while since I've been there, John, but it is it absolutely blew my mind when I was there. It's it is so cool. All the different types of eucs that you have there, like all the flowers, and just there's such small growing plants. They're just absolutely brilliant. It's a beautiful arboretum. Mm. And it, it is looking good. So I would just encourage everyone to come out and visit and. Thank you again very much for speaking about us. No problem, no John. Thanks Good to hear from you. And, and, All right, thank and you. Kath and, Kath and David Pye, their contribution to that collection has just been fantastic. So, I mean, they're community curators mm. of, 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 of that collection, you know, not getting paid a cent. Mm. Yes. And, and I, I reflected back on a, a, a talk that uh, Kath Pye gave to the Big Ends group, the Botanic Gardens group, and she said, we started out with $100. <laughs> to develop this collection so all we could really afford to do is to contact Nindathana Nursery yeah. or Seed Supplier and actually buy the seeds so the $100 went into seed purchase seed, yes. yeah. and from, the, from that initial seed purchase uh, maybe five or six or seven years ago they've established this phenomenal collection probably the best collection of small eucalypts Outside of their natural Outside environment. Outside of their natural <laughs> range. You know, Amazing. from a hundred dollars. Coming back to how we started, you know, the, the, this is the power of people to be able to make a significant contribution by having a, having a go. A yeah. hundred dollars is a modest amount of money to start yeah. a collection. That's right. And, they, and what they've achieved with that hundred dollars and lots and lots and lots of input yeah. since um, is remarkable. Yep. And that's making the contribution thing. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And I was so delighted to hear you when you are mentioning about uh, who'd been recipients of the state government grants, Kyneton Botanic Kyneton, Gardens. Yeah. Now, now there's been some very dedicated people Thank working you. very hard for that garden. Absolutely. So I'm delighted that um, I think that was for a, a management uh Plan. Management plan. So, yes. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, and I mean, in all these areas that are being burnt, that these botanic gardens will be able to hopefully, you know, potentially hold collections of, of some of the rarer species from around those areas. Yeah. And that's what the, the Begans Care for Rare project is yeah, doing as exactly, well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's about, it's about local gardens contributing to, to local environmental issues. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's uh, uh, and Ranges. It's a $30,000 grant um, uh, to develop a revised conservation management plan for the Kyneton Gardens. Yes. Uh, document the garden's heritage, botanical significance and set out um, policies for heritage conservation uh, and what's going to happen in the future. So right. a really, really important bit of looking back and capturing the history and the heritage yep. and looking forward to what is possible in the future for that garden. That's great. It's terrific. That's really great. Yeah. And because I know Margot must have been punching the Margot's air when she been, heard that. Yeah. Well, I know. She's, she's been putting so much effort into it. But not just Margot. There's been a few of others course. up there as well in Kyneton. And the Friends Group. They've worked so hard. They really have. Yeah. Because, because originally that was... Oh, it was so run down. I mean, it was a caravan park. It was, you know, you name it. It was everything that people don't visualise a botanic garden. And, yep. and it's really coming back to life. So it's, it's wonderful. Uh, it, it's interesting that botanic garden, lots of our heritage gardens were established in the 1800s and yes. they really were um, places of community pride. 
really well managed, really well curated. You know, they were magnificent gardens throughout, you know, much of the 19th century. Back into the 20th century, Kyneton and many, many other regional botanic gardens kind of lost their way. They, they weren't being managed as botanic gardens. Mm. They were being managed like a public park. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, there were incursions like caravan parks and they... they it was with that regional well, gardens. Even in the, mini zoos yeah, in some yeah, places. All manner of crazy strange things. stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um, but certainly no, no, not really being managed as botanic gardens. Yes. And, and and many of the botanic gardens on that list have have really turned the corner, and things like this planning money at at Kyneton can really help mm. them um, identify opportunities to to bounce back. Because it's a fantastic garden. Mm. The, oh yes, the, it is. The framework of that garden yes. is magnificent. Yeah, yeah. But this also points to the the absolute importance of Bagans yep. um, as an umbrella group. Yep. And and it's really brought into focus the significance of all these regional botanic gardens. And and given given each of the, the any of the volunteers that work in these gardens um, a framework, if you like, for what a botanic Gardens, gardens should be, should be. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and a direction for them for the future, and yeah. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it's good. We're, we're fortunate, aren't we, in Victoria to have so many great regional botanic Very gardens. Fortunate. Very And I must say, fortunate to have a state government who, that who, are, who are currently backing us. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, that's it's brilliant. Really yeah. positive, isn't it? Okay. Um, we are running through. We've, got, we've got only got five minutes or so, just a little over five minutes. Um, if anyone does want to ring in and ask a gardening question or make a comment, uh, now's the time before we run out of time. So uh, 94190155 if you'd like to speak to the team on air or 94198377 if you'd like to have a chat to Matt on the outside lines. Chloe, what have you got? Can we just go for some, like, tips to try to drought-proof or, like, keep your garden dry tolerant? Build resilience. Good. Mulching is so important. Like, good quality, well-broken-down mulch. So you can buy cheap green mulches, and sometimes they can take nitrogen out of your soil, and if you've got new plants in there, they will suffer. The way to counter that is a sprinkling of blood and bone before you put the mulch down, and yep. then you put your green mulch. And, and what's happening? What's happening to cause that? It's just the breakdown actually the, draws the nitrogen. Yes, the mulch, the green mulch that you've just put on is st- is still breaking down itself, and yep. it draws nitrogen out of the soil. The, yeah, or starves the soil of nitrogen. I think it draws it out draws of the it soil. Out. Right. So if you put in, um, throw over some handfuls of blood and bone yep. um, before you put down the mulch. Yep. It counters that. It counters that, ba- yeah, counters yep. that out. I've just done that with some, um, I've done a big mulching area and some new garden beds at the end of winter um, last year, and the plants are doing fine. I think it's because I put down some that thing, because the arborist came, he'd cut down a tree and dumped. Oh, so it was super fresh. It was super fresh, right. and I was really scared that I was going to, like, kill a whole heap of new plants, but yeah, right. it was fine. Yeah, cool. And they're growing. We, we learnt a lot. Um, from mulching the Australian garden at, at Cranbourne, and we actually made some some mistakes in the mulch that we used. It was right. a, it was a really good story, uh, and again a shout out to Bazistos because they donated a lot of material, mm. which was a byproduct of oil distilling. Okay, uh, and it looked fantastic, and it it, it had all, we, we thought some really good properties. Yeah, but too many fine particles. So we found that... What, the rain couldn't get through? We found in our sandy soils that rather than the roots getting into the soil below, it was, it was, the roots were being arranged in the fine particles Ah, on the surface. Ah, yeah, right. Um, so it was encouraging these fine particles on the surface. 
they were acting as a bit of a sponge, so that so catching a fair bit of rainwater before it hit the soil, and almost acting as a sponge on the surface. Right. So, so water wasn't penetrating deep. It wasn't into the getting soil. down to the yeah. Um, but the other the other thing is is because it was full of you know really nice organic humus. Um, that we were getting roots arranged on the surface and not right. getting very deep resilience. Yep. We've consequently changed to a much coarser mulch yeah. with, with very, very few fines and, and straight away um, there's no advantage. In fact, there's a disadvantage for roots to sit on the surface. So we're mm. getting much deeper root yep. penetration into the soil mm. with a coarser mulch. That's a so really good point to think about. So mm. coarse mulch is good. Coarse fine mulch, mm, not, not so, so good. Much. Like coarse pine bark, if you want a darker coloured mulch, is really good. Fine. There yeah. might maybe some pH issues. Yep, but potentially. But, but better than fine. So anything with yeah. lots of fine particles, I yeah. tend to avoid. But a good thick layer of mulch at the end, you know... Put it on in springtime or something to capture, you know, what we hopefully get in. in winter and yep. hold it in. Yep. Yeah. Um, no, we've been talking about plant selection all morning. So having the right plant selection, putting yep. in the right plants in your garden. So doing a bit of research. It's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and knowing your soils and knowing knowing what you've got in your garden. Mm. So no, if you've got a clay soil like Ian was just telling us about before, you know, Sunbury is a really challenging soil to sure. garden in. Yeah. Uh, if you've got, if you know spots in the garden that get waterlogged in winter, then pick plants that, and, and that waterlogged spot gets really dry and cracked over summer. So plants that can take that wet winter, dry summer. Yeah. Um, if you've got sandy soils, woohoo, you can plant some really cool banksias. Yep, yep. <laughs> But, but knowing what you've got and, and... And working with it. And working with it, don't try to work against it yeah. because you'll end up creating so much more work for yourself. We've just got time to go to another caller and we have uh, Sue. Good morning, Sue. Hi, how are you? Oh, we're well. With a plant list a mile long <laughs> to add to your... Um, only the reason that I'm doing it is because I'm on clay so I get the dry in summer and I get the waterlogged in winter. Yes. And I've got a mixed garden of Australian natives that also gets full sun and also get the frost. So I've been working... I've got it all. So I'm going to add some other ones that are really... Um, that have stood up, some of them, 20 years in the garden. Yep. Yeah. Um, but one, one thing I wanted to say is a lot of people don't know that with the Coria Glabra... There's a fantastic one out there that uh, under the Bush Magic Range called Ivory Beacon. Okay. Yeah. And it's a small one, uh, probably about one and a half metres, but we've also brought in, I haven't got it yet, a compact form of it. And the beauty of that is it flowers now. So um, that plant, I've had that in my garden. It's an absolute stunning plant Perfect. for the sun or the shade. Okay. And the other one is dusky bells. I mean, if people have oh, got yeah. dry shades, 100%. you cannot go past that. Mine don't dusky get bells. Absolutely. They've used it a lot in um, plantings like in libraries up in Mount Evelyn. They've yep. got um, mini cogs and uh, mass plantings of dusky bells and it's a... Great plant. That goes but on in the dry shade. That goes in full yep. sun. That's yep. a brilliant plant. Yep. We've only brilliant. got about yep. half a minute or so, Sue. Oh, so oh, just quickly I go have, through. I'll do quickly. Philothecas was one of the main ones that I was going to say is brilliant um, in your native range. Yep. Um, all Philothecas, all of the Philothecas. Yeah, they're great. And also Pymelia nivea and Cyera, Cyera literalis is an absolute ripper. Yep. Some, some um, 
there's some really nice additions to some of the plants that we've talked about today. And also the Quinsia. The Quinsia Baxterides yeah, are really yeah, drought tolerant too. Yeah. So I've used those. They're probably the most uh, reliable. And if you're going to go Crowias, and I have trouble with it, Pink Starlet is a brilliant one that'll hold up too. Okay, that'll take yeah. the wet. That's yeah. great. All right. We've yeah. run out of time, Sue, I'm afraid. Okay. okay. Thanks for Bye. 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 Great, great list, though. That's a great list. Yeah. Okay, and we have run out of time, I'm afraid, until uh, until next Sunday. So uh, if, um, do join in then. I hope we've been of some help. And um, do have a look at your gardens. Have a walk around your, your, your neighbourhood, as John suggested. See what's come through this summer. And uh, that might well suit your own garden if you're looking for other suggestions. But uh, we do have to go. A big thank you to uh, Doug and Matt who've been handling all the phones. And uh, we'll be back 7.30 next Sunday morning. Till then, bye for now.